Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter and the founder of aggrad.com that connects students and young professionals to hiring agribusinesses. Well, wouldn't agriculture be a whole lot easier if we could control the weather, we could control the rain, we can control the climate? Well, that's exactly what indoor agriculture seeks to do. And today's episode is on vertical farming. Now, vertical farming is the practice of producing food through either vertically stacked layers of trays of plants, vertically inclined surfaces, and or other type structures that allow us to grow crops on top of each other without obviously shading the sunlight from each other and thus killing the ones on the bottom. The modern idea of vertical farming uses controlled environment agriculture technology, so technology so that we can make sure that the freeze doesn't hit us, the drought doesn't hit us, and we can better monitor and manage the pests and diseases associated with growing crops. Today's episode I find extremely fascinating and extremely encouraging for those of us who love agriculture and aren't sure that we will ever be able to live out our dream of commercially farming. There are some big opportunities in this space of vertical farming that allow you to, on a hyper-local basis, with very little resources and very little space, grow enough that could actually support a family. Our guest today is Dr. Nate Story of Bright Agritech. I've been following Bright Agritech for quite some time. They're leaders in the space of high-density indoor and greenhouse farming techniques. They partner with farmers of all sizes to build a fresher, more distributed food system. So they will talk to farmers that are growing in a couple hundred square feet all the way up to greater than 10,000 square feet operations. They build the equipment, sell you the equipment, and also help you get on your feet growing inside either in a greenhouse, vertically outdoors even, or in like a warehouse type situation. I have a lot of questions for Dr. Story about the economics of vertical farming, the future of vertical farming, and exactly what does a vertical farmer look like. I think you are really going to enjoy this episode with Dr. Nate Story of Bright Agritech. Okay, Dr. Nate Story of Bright Agritech on the podcast today. Dr. Story, thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we get too into sort of the nitty-gritty here on vertical farming, why don't you just start off by telling us all what first attracted you to the industry? Sure. So um, I've always I've always had kind of a, a family tied to agriculture, but uh, I, re- I really became interested. I was living in China. And I was living in an apartment that overlooked a threshing floor, and and I got to see how agriculture was done in China, and realized that the, the folks, at least in the area that I was in, could certainly benefit from more technology, more modern agricultural techniques, and that's really kind of what got me started on this path. So I came back to the states and ended up going to school at the University of Wyoming and did a bachelor's in agronomy, and then my master's and PhD in uh, well, my my bachelor's in agroecology, then my master's and PhD in agronomy. And did you go ahead and start Bright Agritech straight out of uh, your PhD program? 
Yeah, I actually kind of started while I was working on my PhD, which was, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm glutton for punishment or it didn't have enough work to do. I don't know what the problem was. I wouldn't recommend it. It was definitely a bit overwhelming, but I started, I think, my the second year of my PhD. Oh, wow. And your dissertation, was it on some aspect of vertical farming? Yeah, so um, my research at the time was on was on uh, vertical plane production, so growing in three-dimensional space as opposed to two-dimensional and trying to uh, improve resource use efficiency in greenhouses. So it tied in very, very nicely to the business idea, which was equipment for greenhouse growers and folks that wanted to grow vertically. Great. And, and oftentimes when I'm thinking about vertical farming, I think growing indoors, growing hydroponically, and, and growing organically, those three things are pretty generalized, are, but are they always the case? Not always. You know, we really got started growing in greenhouses, so we were growing vertically in greenhouses initially. We, we started to move inside over time. There were more and more people coming to the space, and they all wanted to be growing indoors. So there, there are variations on all of these different things, and it really just kind of depends on where you live, what resources you have, and, of course, the environmental conditions of your area and your business model. And all those things kind of match up in the right ways, and, and uh, that kind of informs us as to which particular combination of techniques is, is best. Great. And for your products at Bright Agritech, you're selling to people who want to farm in this way. I know ZipGrow is one of your main products. What differentiates those products from, from, from others that are on the market for the industry? The ZipGrow line of products is really different in that it is single plane. So most of the other uh, traditional growing techniques up until ZipGrow equipment was multi-plane. So three or four or two plane production, you know, so production on, on multiple sides of the stack or of the tower. And we just said, you know, one way is better. Let's concentrate all of our sunlight in saleable produce and we're going to just dispense with everything else. So it simplifies everything. It lends itself to automation. And of course, it, it is typically cheaper than other vertical growing techniques. And then uh, ultimately, we combine that with really intensive customer service, which really improves the equipment. You know, uh, farming is it requires a lot of input. It requires a lot of help for folks who have never done it before. And so uh, kind of that combination of technology and information uh, is kind of what sets our products apart. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one thing you notice instantly when, when you visit your website, and I've also been following you all on Facebook for a long time, is your focus on the farmer. I know your motto, it, that, that is your motto, focus on the farmer. I also know that a lot of our listeners coming from more conventional agriculture may have a different profile in their mind of what a farmer looks like. Could you give us a, a good description of what the farmer's look like that you serve in terms of what are they what are they growing what type of socioeconomic are they large or small or what exactly are they doing yeah so our farmers are quite different from uh, your conventional field producer or greenhouse producer uh, they're typically brand new people they haven't farmed before they're jumping in and they're they're jumping in to sell either directly to customers or to the very bottom of the market on the produce side, and by bottom, I mean just really small and niche markets. And so they're, they're doing direct-to-consumer sales, they're selling to restaurants, small grocery stores, that kind of thing. They have never grown before, and so kind of providing them with education, information, and support is just as important as giving them the right kind of technology. So probably fairly different from your average listener, 
But certainly, uh, we believe what many of the small producers, small produce producers are going to look like down the road. Excellent. And I know you're based in Laramie, Wyoming. My wife's family is from Wyoming, so we go up there a lot. Very harsh winters up there. Can a vertical farmer that's growing in a greenhouse, can he grow year-round up there, or would that require some sort of indoor lighting type system? Yeah, so, you know, uh, we were commercial farmers here in Laramie. We grew in greenhouses, and we sold year-round. And we did it without supplemental lighting, but, of course, your productivity in the wintertime goes way down. It's not it's not like you're going to have really consistent uh, yields throughout the year. So, so uh, you definitely have to use lighting if you want to kind of keep your production up through the winter months. Otherwise, you just have to do it kind of like we did and sell through a CSA direct to customers and just say, hey, you guys are going to get a lot less produce in the winter and a lot more in summer. And if people are okay with that, then you can make it work. Great. And I know with, with growing, I keep calling it conventionally, you can call it 2D. I mean, growing in soil, whatever you'd like to refer to it as. But I know with that, it's really important to do crop rotation, mainly for, you know, not only for soil health, but also for pest management and other reasons. Is there any benefit to rotating in a vertical farming situation, uh, maybe for pest management or disease? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, n- nutritionally, uh, it doesn't impact the system that much because we're not working with soil. We're working with formulated solutions. So nutritionally, there's not a whole lot of benefit to rotation, but certainly for breaking disease cycles and for pest management, it can be really, really useful to cycle between crops uh, to kind of break the, um, to break those cycles. And uh, we, we certainly did it to a great degree, and most of our farmers do as well, switching out crops to make sure that, you know, you're not just transferring pests from one lettuce crop to the next. You can break it with you know, brassicas or put, you know, basically put something else in the mix that kind of prevents them from, from continuing their life cycle. How long does the equipment last, generally speaking, like the zip grow equipment? A pretty long time, especially indoors, you know, where it's more protected. You know, our tower housings have a 20-year warranty on them in the media. We warranty for about one year, but, but it typically lasts, you know, six to seven years. So people end up growing with it quite some time, which is really the goal, ultimately. We've been told that we should uh, incorporate more planned obsolescence into our equipment designs, but that's never really struck the right chord with us. So it lasts quite a while. We we wanted to make sure that we were building equipment that was really durable and that lasted farmers a long time. So if someone's going to make a big investment in something, you know, farming farming is not an easy way to let make a living. And even moving it indoors and and trying to to protect it a little bit more from the elements. Uh, exercise more control over the environment, all of that kind of thing, doesn't doesn't make it an easy way to make money. And the goal with, especially with, on the equipment side, is to provide folks with something that's going to basically represent minimal costs in the future as they continue to grow. So we don't want people to have to come buy, back and buy equipment year after year after year. Great. Yeah. And I do have a lot of questions kind of on the, the economics of how, how that all works. But briefly, what are the main crops that people are buying this equipment to grow? Or, or is it just so vast you can't even really pick out a handful? Yeah. So, um, you know, most of our customers are growing and selling crops that are high water weight and high value. So these are lower volume in many cases on the smaller side of things, lower volume, super high water weight, things like basil, Things like mint, you know, culinary herbs, high water weight culinary herbs, 
and culinary herbs specifically that don't ship very well, right? Because you can grow them real close to your markets and sell them really close to your markets. Make a great margin on them uh, just by because you're closer. Things like lettuces, kale, those, those types of leafy greens are also very popular crops. There are a lot of crops you certainly you, you can grow indoors and in towers, but ultimately it's almost always going to focus in on really nice high margin, high water weight crops where uh, you're you're basically selling folks water and packaged in the form of this plant. That's always going to be the, the highest margin and the best products to be selling. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, so basil, mint, culinary herbs, lettuces, thing, things like that. Yep. Okay, is, is there any fear, or maybe we're just so... Well, let me ask you this question first, actually. How tall are your towers? You know, most of the ones that are used in, say, like greenhouses are about five feet tall. Most of the stuff that folks are using indoors now uh, varies in height, typically between seven and nine feet tall in like a warehouse growing operation, something like that. So, you know, variable heights. And, and what is the difference in density if they were just growing them flat in, in a greenhouse in soil versus the towers? What's the difference in density? Well, in a greenhouse, we can typically do around uh, three times as much production per square foot in towers as we can just horizontally in something like in FT trays. So for growers that are interested in expanding their, their production without expanding their facility, you know, it becomes kind of an attractive thing. The, in, when we move it indoors, like into warehouses, it becomes even more dense. And so in those scenarios, we're, we're maybe five to six times what you could do in a horizontal NFT system on the low end. And some of our growers are, are much, much more than that, something more like 12 to 15 times as much production per square foot. Okay, wow. And this, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. This may be the most difficult question I ask you today. I, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. But if I'm, so if I'm pretty good at marketing, I can go direct to consumer and I'm growing these herbs, uh, basil, mint, etc. I'm here in Austin, Texas, and I need to make, let's say, $50,000 a year for my family. What type of square footage would I need to be looking at if I'm going to manage it all myself? Yeah, you know, so most folks are growing when they're doing like true indoor, like warehouse type production. They're usually doing, you know, somewhere around 1,000 to 1,500 square feet on the low end. So that's usually where you're at if you're selling herbs, that kind of thing. That's, that's enough to make a good living and feed your family and are on a very small scale. So it's, it's possible to, to do it on a very small scale. Some of our growers will scale up from there. Some will do 10,000 square feet. We have a few farms in process that are, you know, uh, much, much larger than that. So uh, it really just kind of depends on the business goals and what folks' appetites are. Of course, our goal is really to see more people farming on a small scale. We're not interested in just replicating traditional, very large farms indoors. We, we want to see those farms marketing products niche markets and to markets that have been underserved in the past. And really the only way to do it is to do it fairly small. It's really the small growers that can afford to go out and find those niche markets and sell into them. And really small guys that are going to be content with with a business that maybe gives makes them a living of fifty to a hundred thousand bucks a year and and really honestly going much bigger than that can hurt them. It's not always a better thing to go bigger in those markets. So we're really focused on the small guys. They're the ones that are most happy in that type of a situation. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And also, especially if you're selling, you know, restaurant quality culinary herbs, they're going to want fresh straight from, you know, straight from the farmer's hands, I would imagine anyway. So that makes sense. So if I get started here with a, you know, let's say a 1500 square foot greenhouse, I want to grow a little bit. And let's say I add up to 2000 square feet. How long before I just can't manage it all by myself anymore before I would need to like hire somebody else? Yeah. So, um, that's a good question. And it's kind of a complicated one because it's going to depend on your crop mix. Different crops have different labor requirements. And that's really ultimately what it comes down to, right? Is is you have only so many hours in a day as a single owner operator. And so that's really what kind of the business is focused on. So crops like herbs have much higher margins, but they also require a lot more labor, right? So it's the kind of thing where if you have a crop mix that's just pure basil, can build a much smaller farm because you you really are making a lot more money per unit but there's also a lot of labor there as well so it depends on the crop mix I, I would say that most growers who are just just want to basically be them they don't want to employ anyone they don't want to hire anyone mess with that they can usually handle somewhere around 1600 towers at most which which is a fairly decent sized farm that's a full-time job, though. That's a pretty much full-time job. And you want to make sure you have the markets for it. A lot of our growers that convert from other techniques are surprised, especially moving from greenhouse or outdoor to indoor, are surprised at the productivity. And what ultimately catches most of them off guard is the fact that they're producing more than they can sell because they underestimated their production. And so, you know, there's there's a fair amount of work, not just on the growing side, but on the marketing side, too, especially if you want the best margins. You know, it's going to have to be you as the farmer that's out there knocking on doors saying, hey, you want to buy my stuff. And that's, that's the really time intensive part. Yeah. So generally speaking, the space isn't the biggest constraint because they can sort of optimize to to the other areas. You know, if, if I if I have a thousand square feet and I want to grow, I could just do more in herbs and less in lettuces right that's right yeah okay yeah no that that's really interesting and i know this is maybe a little bit out of what you would normally do but but if i have a thousand square foot and i want to put a greenhouse up what's that generally cost are there per square you know per square footage cost for greenhouse generally speaking yeah it really kind of depends you know on the really low tech side you know you can do something more like a high tunnel and come in at, at really a few dollars a square foot on the high end, if you want to put in a much nicer greenhouse, you're going to end up somewhere in the 20 to 30 or even 30 to $40 a square foot range for a greenhouse. And the thing that I always tell folks about greenhouses, and one of the reasons why we're seeing this huge upsurge in, in growers who are actually growing in warehouses, is that greenhouses depreciate very, very quickly. They're not, they're not you know, things that hold value. It's like buying a car or a truck or a tractor. You know, the moment you drive it off the lot, it starts to lose money. Hmm. And that's really, it's very similar with a greenhouse. It's one of the reasons why folks have started to put up warehouses and actually just grown warehouses is because they're building an asset that holds value and appreciates. So it really kind of depends. I wouldn't always recommend that you go out and build a greenhouse. But in fact, one of the things that we started to do for, for all of the customers that ask is uh, do an analysis of your environmental conditions and real estate values and your cost per square foot for greenhouse versus warehouse and figure out what really the ideal economic scenario is for an individual grower who 
just wants to make some money and wants to be spending their money really wisely and not get stuck with, say, a greenhouse that is worth, you know, one-tenth of what they put into it. Yeah, absolutely. One more question just on costs. I would imagine, especially if you're growing indoor, like in a warehouse, paying to keep the lights on and paying to pump the water, the energy costs have to be pretty substantial. Do you help your growers or or how, how do you manage that at all? manage the energy yeah yeah are are the energy costs just astronomical and if if not how do you manage that because i would just think keeping the lights on all the time and and keeping the water flowing for the hydroponics would be pretty expensive yeah it can be pretty pricey Uh, the water isn't too bad the real issue is the lighting and of course even with like led high efficiency led lights, the the cost of running them is, is pretty darn high the the thing to keep in mind though is that most of these crops that people are growing are worth a lot of money. And so even though the lighting is high, it's it's oftentimes still worth it. So I tell folks it's like kind of combining the the worst cost elements of agriculture and the worst cost elements of manufacturing that kind of build one of these things or put it all together, you know, which which sounds kind of scary, but you also have kind of the best possible, I guess, incentives profit-wise of manufacturing combined with some of the great things about agriculture as well. So it's very high cost, but also very high reward for the folks that manage to pull it off and have the market for it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, lighting is going to be a significant amount of your total operating expenses for sure. But you got to keep in mind that a lot of these guys are growing and selling wholesaling basil at $30 a pound or more. Hmm. So, when you're pumping out hundreds and hundreds of square of dollars per square foot on an annual back on an annual basis, those costs, despite how high they are, become quite reasonable. Great, yeah, that that, that makes sense. I want to go back to one thing you said. You mentioned sixteen hundred towers is about kind of standard for somebody getting started with a full time operation. How much square foot is that, generally speaking, for sixteen hundred towers? Well, to be clear, sixteen hundred isn't necessarily what folks usually start off with. 1,600 is about the maximum that a single person could run if they are doing longer life cycle type crops. Most of our growers end up starting off with just a few hundred. So usually, you know, somewhere in the, so somewhere in the like 200 to 500 range. And it really, again, depends on the crop mix. So something like that, you know, I think our full bundle is somewhere around nine racks and nine racks will hold 30 towers per rack maximum. So that's about 270 towers, half loaded, you know, about half that. So closer to, you know, 175 towers, somewhere in that range. So, you know, that's, that's often where folks are starting for a very small operation. That really doesn't take up much more than about 20 feet by, by 30 feet, 20 feet by 30 or 40 feet. So pretty, pretty compact. Hmm. Is there any sort of value add of growing crops this way? I mean, are, are there consumers out there that said, you know, I want my produce grown vertically because I think it's more efficient, it's better for the environment, so I'm willing to pay a premium for that. Is that a thing? So that's not what people are paying for. No one's saying I want vertically grown produce. What people are saying is I want hyper-local produce. I want produce that's grown locally, grown by someone whose hand I can shake, grown by someone I know. I want to have authentic food. And that's what customers are demanding right now. That's why we see 
this boom in the local food industry, you know, as, as all this, this local label becomes worth an awful lot. And so that's really what most of our growers are writing. And I don't think it's a fad. I think it's going to be something that grows. I think it's increasingly going to usurp and replace the organic label moving forward, mostly because people have become to become quite cynical about the organic label. And it's much, much harder to cheat local, right? Because if you got the guy's phone number and you shake his hand, you know he's real, you know it's real, and it feels like a very different, more authentic experience. And that ultimately is what people want. And so for our growers that are growing vertically, you know, they're not selling it as vertical or indoor or any of that stuff. They're just selling it as local. That makes sense. It, it, can you can you certify organic, something that's grown hydroponically? I, I've heard that there's some conflict there. Historically, you've been able to, but the NOSB just kind of has actually just over the last month or two come out quite strongly against it. So I think that we're going to see uh, no more hydropo- organic labels for anything hydroponic, including aquaponic producers. Too bad. But ultimately, as much as the industry is freaking out about it, for most uh, growers, I don't think it's actually going to be that bad of a thing, simply because many of them are already small and many of them are already local. And what we're discovering in our markets is that customers are willing to pay more for local than organic. So local conventional is more valuable to consumers right now than organic. And in fact, uh, the organic label on a local product is at so much, so little value, it's so marginal that there's almost no difference in customer preference for local conventional or organic one over the other. So that's a great thing for local producers. And what it means is that the customers don't really care if it's hydroponic or organic or not. What they want now is really mostly just something that's local. And I would argue that really what they want is something that's honest and something that's authentic and transparent. And so local is the best possible proxy for all of those things. I agree. It's not like a customer's going to say, you know, farmer Tim, I've been buying from you for a year. I've seen your operation. I shake your hand every week to buy my produce, but you know, you're losing that organic certification. So now I can't buy from you anymore. I I just don't see that. It's more important to have those authentic relationships and that trust, like you say. That's right. I definitely agree. Yeah. You know, consumers don't even understand what organic is, right? If you, if you ask a consumer, your average produce consumer that buys uh, organic quite consistently, if you ask them what that actually means, they're not going to actually have any kind of a meaningful answer for you most of the time, right? They're going to they're going to spout off some mumbo jumbo about how it's better for the earth or pesticide free or something else, all of which are you know patent false and or in many scenarios just don't you know don't make any sense because they're just poorly educated on what that that label means. And so that's, you know, the source of a lot of this cynicism is that people assumed that the organic label was all of these things. And as it's been kind of co-opted more and more, as we're seeing more production overseas of USDA organic products that are shipped from China or shipped from Mexico or Turkey or where have you, the consumer says, well, what does this label really actually represent? You know, it's no more transparent. And that's really what I wanted in the first place. So, yeah, we're seeing... No, let me put it this way. No one's losing any customers because the local guy isn't organic. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the first episodes we did of this podcast was on organic feed going to 
people who produce organic milk, organic eggs. We yeah. talked about, you know, a lot of those feed ingredients could be coming from India. And so really, what, in the end, what's the net benefit to, to to the planet and to the consumer? And I And I also have found that in my conversations, a consumer that buys organic, often one of the first points they will cite is for their own health, that I just think it's healthy. And, and like you said, I don't know how much science there is back to back that a claim like that. Right. There's there's not much, ultimately, you know, and it's not that I'm anti-organic. I love organic. I think it's a great triumph for, you know, modern marketing and kind of di- diversifying the number of different product categories out there within, you know, for a single product. I think it's amazing. I think it's been really great for producers overall, but at the same time, we just kind of have to be honest about what it is and what it isn't and have a really frank conversation about that. And one of the great things about it now that we can enjoy that the organic movement has given us is the ability to sell things like local and have it be meaningful. You know, it primed customer for, it primed the market, it primed all of these customers for additional labels that they probably never would have bought before organic. Definitely. And when it comes to transparency and kind of democratizing the food system, cool is going to go a lot further in that regard, you know, than, than organic, the way things have been going. Are there any companies out there developing to support vertical farming from an agronomic standpoint? Meaning like, are there any seed companies out there trying to develop varieties that are better suited for this type of production? You know, there's a lot of folks kind of sniffing around the space. They're very interested. Now, you know, indoor, the way that we're doing it and the way that a lot of these growers are doing it, it's so no, new that it's one of those, it's one of those markets where the, the, some of the seed companies ha- have interest, but they're just kind of keeping an eye on it, right? Because they don't really know what it's going to turn out to be, whether it's a fad, whether it's going to be a long-term thing, whether it's something they should be dumping money into. I will tell you that some of the larger ones have, not necessarily secretly, but certainly without a lot of fanfare, set up indoor production facilities, seed production facilities and breeding facilities. And many of them were already using indoor production facilities for, you know, doing multiple multiple life cycles in, in the course of a year, speeding things along or very specific testing. And so this is not a, a far stretch from what they were already doing. I don't want to make it sound like they're they're jumping into this, but there are they are they have begun to basically talk with some of the leaders in the industry. And they've begun to ask about seed development specifically for these things. And the, I think that they're interested for two reasons. The first one is it's a business opportunity. You know, down the road, they're saying this could be a big industry. And this could be worth a lot of money. On the other hand, they're looking at it as a threat because they've spent a lot of these seed companies, especially for, for the kind of crops that are being cultivated indoors, have spent the last, you know, some of them the last hundred years breeding to try and limit the effects of environment on the outcome in the field. And so they've been looking at field production. And, and I always say, you know, uh, the easiest way to think about it is kind of in plant genetics, you have classic equation, which is phenotype equals genetics plus environment and or genotype plus environment. So it's the idea that you have environmental effects, you've got genetic effects, and the combination of those two things uh, gives you your ultimate outcome, your phenotype. So all these seed companies for a long, long time have been looking at the field environment and saying, how can we alter the genetics in a way that limits the effects of environment? You know, they've basically 
spent all this time breeding these incredibly complex traits into these different crops to account for this highly variable environment. And what the indoor growers are doing now or offering now is they're coming forward and saying, hey, guys, we can eliminate all the effects of environment on the crop. So the, all of the environmental effects, throw them right out the window. We can provide the optimal environment. All of a sudden, your plant breeding becomes much, much simpler. So instead of having to deal with these incredibly complicated traits that have you know, all these unforeseeable outcomes and specific scenarios can simplify this entire process, control environment almost completely. And now phenotype basically equals genetics plus a much, 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 I mean, environment is just as important, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't have as much of a negative effect on phenotype just because we have it so highly controlled. If you don't want an indoor crop to ever experience, you know, any kind of drought stress, you don't have to. And then you think about how many you know, hundreds of millions of dollars we've thrown it at trying to solve the drought stress problem in the field. And, and uh, it kind of all starts to seem a little silly, especially for the crops that uh, we can grow indoors. So that's the, that's the opportunity that seed companies are looking at. That's really fascinating. As you look to the future of, of vertical farming, what excites you that, that maybe isn't a current reality, but you could see as you look forward? Well, I think we're going to see a lot of small farms start up. And for me, that's very exciting. I've always been about kind of smaller producer and quite excited about what could be done on a very small scale when people were organized correctly and had access to the right information, right markets. And so uh, as, as things kind of advance, especially on the software front and the equipment and machinery front, I think we're going to see many, many more farms producing for much, much more local partitioned markets. And that to me is very exciting because it means there's a lot of opportunity for folks that have not had opportunity for a long time. And I think it gives us an opportunity to return to a much more uh, local, circular, uh, small farm economy in, in some of these areas. And so that, that's really what excites me. I think uh, when, when people think about vertical farming, they think about giant skyscrapers and kind of these highly you know, extremely capital intensive, you know, multi-billion dollar projects. And ultimately, I think that's, that's nonsense. I don't think it needs to be that at all. I think that the future is actually a lot more wonderful and much more closer and more within reach than, than anyone's really let on. And I think it all lies in the hands of folks that are able to come in and set up local production facilities and serve niche markets that have, have really never been properly served before. I love that. I have always been in agriculture and always been entrepreneurial. And I, I was looking for a business to get into that was fairly low barriers to entry. And historically, they've been tough to find in agriculture. You know, just going and buying a plot of land is not feasible for most people. So, I, you know, I recruiting was a great fit for my skill set. But I know there are listeners out there that are just like me, love agriculture, entrepreneurial, looking for something attainable that they can get into. And I think Vertical farming has a ton of opportunity in that regard. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time, especially on a Sunday, Dr. Story, to be on here to get this podcast recorded. I'm excited by this. I know a lot of listeners are going to be excited about it, too. Where can you point them to if they want to satisfy a curiosity in vertical farming? Yes. You know, we've, we've got a number of YouTube videos out there. If you just look up Bright Agritech on YouTube, you're going to see several hundred videos on aquaponics and hydroponics and indoor and outdoor and all everything in between. We have a great blog at brightagritech.com. 
And that is just basically uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, we're just publishing blog posts after blog posts with uh, resources for farmers. And then, of course, we have uh, able.ag, which is our farm planning software. And we're going to be releasing a whole bunch of new features here pretty soon to really focus on small farmers and how, do you, how are you organizing your farm and communicating clearly, you, your employees, and, of course, managing everything that's happening because that's usually the overwhelming thing for small farmers. And lastly, we have Upstart University, which is our, basically it's a, it's a small online university where we're just posting a coursework on indoor farming and, and farming on a very small scale. So everything from the legality of it to uh, marketing and sales to just the everyday, how do you run this thing kind of questions. Well, fantastic. I want to have you back on for a future episode to talk about farm management software in the Upstart University. I think those are both two fascinating things that you're doing as well. So I can't thank you enough again. And hopefully you're willing to come back on the Future of Agriculture podcast on a future episode. Yep, I'd love that. So I ask you, informed listener, vertical farming, what excites you about this? What concerns do you have? Do you think this is a major part of the future of agriculture? Now, as Dr. Story said, what makes the most sense here are crops that have a high water content, uh, maybe a low volume, so that they can be easily grown, managed, and harvested in a confined and small area. So what crops in your mind might be a good fit? Certainly he mentioned basil, lettuce, mint, culinary herbs. I'm sure there are some others that would be very interesting in your local market. Also what I find interesting for those of us in agribusiness, which a lot of us are, the market opportunities and the level playing field associated with servicing these types of farmers. The seed companies, as Dr. Story mentioned, have hundreds of years of experience in developing varieties in a non-controlled environment, but it's a level playing field and a wide open frontier for companies serving a controlled environment in agriculture. I think if we're going to continue to see this trend of wanting locally grown produce readily available in the inner city of downtown Manhattan, as well as many other urban places around the country, because certainly the urbanization trend is going to continue, this will be a factor in the future of agriculture. Is this going to replace the conventional corn, soybean, wheat farm? No, the crops are totally different. However, it doesn't mean there's not a lot of opportunity, a lot of money in this space. So I hope this got you thinking as, it, as I know it did me, and I would love to hear your feedback. Go ahead and join our Facebook group. We have a Facebook group called Ag Grad Social. I love to have the conversation about the podcast on that group. It's growing every week. So go ahead and find us on Facebook. Join the group. It's a private group, but we will accept you, I promise. And we can continue this conversation on vertical farming and others that you'll hear on future episodes of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com. That's A-G. GRAD.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.